Good morning. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Matthew 13, starting at verse 24, we're continuing our series on Jesus' parables. Uh, before uh, Christmas, we were working on uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Now we're talking about Jesus' parables. And I have to say, there's a lot of the Bible to preach, but I'm really enjoying that we're spending this year just recentering ourselves in the teaching of Jesus. It's been a blessing to me, and I hope to you as well. Um, this morning, we're moving on to Jesus' next parable, the parable of the weeds. I'm just going to read right through. There's a couple of other parables in there um, that we're not going to touch, the mustard and the leaven. That's for Ryan next week, but I'll just read through so we get the sort of whole uh, complete picture of the text as it stands. Starting Matthew 13, starting in verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace." In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for our time. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open this parable of Jesus to us, that we might understand the things that are hidden in it, and that we might know you in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes the right thing to do is nothing at all. One of my favorite movies 
uh, is Akira Kurosawa's movie Yojimbo. It's a samurai movie. And there's this samurai who we never really know his real name. He comes into town, and he discovers this town is being run by these rival gangs, and that they're destroying everyone's life. And we as the audience are wondering, what is he going to do about this? And what does he do? Nothing. But in a very intelligent way, using misdirection and calculated inactivity, he gets the two gangs to fight with each other and decimate each other until, of course, in the final scene, he has to have a big sword fight because it wouldn't be a fun movie otherwise. But not until the right moment does he draw that sword. It's a very interesting exposition of the Taoist principle of acting through not acting. And sometimes, rather than going straight to the problem, we would succeed better by doing nothing. In this parable, I think Jesus is telling us to do nothing. Well, we'll come back to that. Um, for our points here, I, I want to start, as we've been, uh, as Ryan did last week, by talking a little bit about how parables work. Because this uh, chapter isn't just a list of parables. It also has a lot to say about why is Jesus talking in parables and how they work. So our first point is going to be that uh, the truth Jesus speaks is hidden in parables. And our second point is going to be that the children of the kingdom and the children of evil are hidden. And our third point, we're going to see that Jesus is judge. So we're going to see that the truth is hidden in parables. We're going to see that the children of the kingdom and the children of evil are hidden. And we're going to see that Jesus is judge. So first point, the truth is hidden in parables. In verse 35, Matthew quotes the scripture. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. And Matthew says that this is fulfilled in Jesus. Actually, Matthew's doing something rather creative here, something I think that illustrates that he's writing to a Jewish community full of people who are taking time studying and memorizing the Old Testament in Hebrew. Um, it's really kind of nuts once you figure it out. He's taken one Old Testament text, Psalm 78.2. Okay, that part's clear. And then he's taken out the last phrase and put in a phrase from another Old Testament text. Isaiah 40.21. Actually, I think we have this in a footnote in the ESV. Some manuscripts actually say Isaiah the prophet in verse 35, and I think that was probably an original reading. He's giving his audience a clue that, yeah, I'm going to mostly quote, a, quote from uh, um, this Psalm 78, but I'm also mixing in some Isaiah. So here's what Psalm 78.2 says. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. You see how that's almost the same? But instead of the last from of old, he puts in from the foundation of the world. And this is an allusion to a different Old Testament text, Isaiah 40, 21. Uh, and Isaiah 40, 21 says, Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? I might talk a little bit more about how this works on our podcast this week, but suffice it to say that this is an example of the way that for Jewish believers at the time of Jesus, they were saturated with the Old Testament, and they were able to draw all kinds of connections from only a few words. But what does it mean to say that Jesus fulfills these two Old Testament texts? Well, let's start with the first one. 
Psalm 78 is a psalm of Asaph. And Asaph begins his psalm by saying he's going to speak a proverb or a parable. Proverb and parable are the same Greek words, so connect those two things in your mind. Um, both of them draw likenesses, likenesses or analogies for the purpose of giving wisdom. Asaph's parable is simply the story of Israel itself. He says he's actually repeating something that's been passed down from generation to generation. He says how important it is for Israel to remember this. And what is it? It's Israel's story. The original parable is the story of the Exodus, how God brings Israel out of Egypt, sustains them in the wilderness, and then brings them into the land. But also, it's about how they rebelled against him, and God judged them in the wilderness. Asaph then says that this parable has been repeated in the tribe of Ephraim and the northern kingdom of Israel. Because they forgot the story of the Exodus, and Asaph's very clear, it's because they forgot the story, they forgot the parable, that's why they rebelled against God, and as a result, God rejected them for leadership and instead chose Judah and David. Asaph is telling us not to be like Ephraim. Don't forget the parable of Israel's story, but remember it and learn from it. In Isaiah 40.21, on the other hand, the parable seems to be the creation of the world itself. People everywhere are supposed to see that the world is a parable about its creator and understand that the true God is not an idol made with human hands or anything else created. Um, but although this knowledge is available to them in creation, they actually don't know and understand the truth about God. Most people seem to not get the parable. This raises a question about Matthew's claim. If the knowledge of God is right there in creation, and also there in Israel's story, why do we need Jesus to fulfill it? Can't we just sort of figure it out without him? But one thing I think that becomes clear from quoting these verses is that this is a truth which is hidden in plain sight. It's not a secret because it's sort of been kept away from people, hidden among the Illuminati. Rather, people don't understand what's right in front of their faces. They've forgotten how to see God in the world, and even God's own people have forgotten how to see Him in the story of Israel. Why don't people understand it? Well, Psalm 78 actually highlights the problem of forgetting and rebellion, and Isaiah highlights our sin. Sin in our hearts creates a knowledge problem. It blocks us from understanding God's parables. And no matter how God tells this story, we have a tendency to forget. And we see that through the history of Israel as a people, that they're constantly forgetting what God has told them. But Jesus, by speaking in parables, fulfills these parables. Jesus reveals to us the same God that's revealed in creation and in Israel's story. And through him, we can come to understand these parables, which were previously closed to us because of the sin in our hearts. So in one sense, Matthew's saying here that what Jesus is doing has a continuity with the Old Testament. Jesus is revealing the same truths about God that have been revealed for ages past. But at the same time, there's also something really new. There's a new efficacy to his words. So that in his teaching, these parables that have been there since the beginning of the universe but also have somehow been hidden from being really understood since the beginning of the universe, are now finally able to be understood. Basically, Jesus reveals the fundamental mystery of existence, 
the reason why life is the way it is. And I think there's an application here for us, especially in the words of verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. So we know that the disciples, like the crowds, don't really get what Jesus is talking about. But the difference between the disciples and the crowds is the disciples follow Jesus into the house. And they pester him, asking him to explain the parable that they don't understand. They press further for more understanding. I think Matthew's encouraging us to do the same. Does life make no sense to you? Does God make no sense to you? Does the Bible seem like it makes no sense to you sometimes? Follow Jesus into the house. Be diligent in seeking him, asking his spirit to help you understand. There's a reminder to us as a community that even though we have the scriptures, without the Holy Spirit making them clear to us, it would be as if we were reading them from behind a veil. They would just be dark riddles for us. So we have to recognize our dependence upon Jesus and upon his spirit to understand. Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray that the spirit gives us ears. So that's our first point. The truth is hidden in Jesus' parables, but revealed through him. Point number two, the children of the kingdom are hidden and so are the children of evil. Moving to the parable, we talked uh, in our, our previous point about how Jesus is the one who reveals hidden things in his parables. But then on the other side, a lot of the parables in this section focus on how the kingdom itself is hidden. It's a small and secret thing that grows without us noticing it. But I'm going to leave the mustard seed and the leaven for Ryan. I'm very grateful that he's preaching that one, but since Jesus doesn't explain it at all, I, I got the easy one this week. Today we're focusing on the wheat and the weeds, which teaches us that the children of the kingdom are themselves hidden. Specifically, they're mixed in with the children of evil, like wheat and weeds, such that one can scarcely tell them apart. And provocatively, Jesus says, maybe we shouldn't even try to. But let's run through the parable before we jump into interpreting it. So we have this man who sows his field with seed, and he's very careful to use good, high-quality seed. But then this enemy sneaks in at night and sows weeds among the wheat. And weeds here is actually, the Greek word is probably specifically a reference to a plant that we call darnel in English. Scientific name, Lolium temulentum, if you want to look that up on Wikipedia. It was a familiar weed with anybody growing wheat really any time before the modern period. Here's the problem with darnel. Problem number one, it looks almost exactly like wheat. Really, I mean, you know, Google it at some point later. It looks almost the same. At least until the plants reach full maturity, at which point there's a color change. Uh, the wheat turns brown and the darnel turns black. It's, it's really hard to tell them apart. And here's problem number two. Darnel is poisonous. The seeds, depending on the dosage, can cause dizziness, drowsiness, stomach pain, hallucinations, madness, or even death. So it posed a big problem for all pre-modern agriculture, threatening to contaminate the grain supply. If too much of this gets in there, you're going to have a bad time. Um, 
And uh, this problem of somebody like maybe even maliciously sowing it seems to have sometimes actually happened between feuding farmers, at least enough that this was a recognized situation where you might bring a lawsuit under Roman law. You know, they had a section for, for this. It's certainly a nasty thing to do, isn't it? The servants are really upset when they notice all of these weeds growing among the weeds. And they're even more upset when they learn that it's the result of intentional sabotage. But they're ready to roll up their sleeves and get to work, aren't they? But the master says, no. Why not? Why not uproot the weeds? Because if they uproot the weeds, they might damage the weeds as well. The concern might be that um, the darnel looks so much like the wheat that you might, even though you can tell them apart if you try really hard, it would be very difficult not to make a mistake at least a few times. Or it might even be more serious than that, that the, the root system of the weeds is intertangled with the wheat. So even if you did only pull up weeds, you could still damage the wheat itself. So they must wait for the harvest time. Then the wheat will turn brown and the weeds will turn a different color. Both will be fully grown and ready to be separated from their roots. And you notice it's not even going to be the servant's job to do this. That's going to be for the hired reapers that come in. Uh, they're going to gather up the weeds and throw them into the fire, but they're going to keep the valuable wheat for the barn. Okay, so what does this mean? Like I said, I'm lucky because Jesus explains it. The, well, the sower is the son of man, one of Jesus' favorite ways to refer to himself. And the seeds are the sons of the kingdom. Notice the switch from the previous parallel. We have the same image of sowing seed, but there the seed was the word of the gospel. Here the seed is people. The good seed is the people who've been changed by the word of Christ, those who truly listen to his teaching and receive the kingdom in their hearts. And now Christ, the Son of Man, sprinkles them through the world. Notice that Jesus says the field is the world. So Christ intends for the children of the kingdom to grow up in the midst of the whole world. But the devil, the enemy, Satan, he sows weeds among the wheat. And these are people that Jesus refers to as either the children of evil or of the evil one. And this doesn't seem to refer simply to unbelievers or non-Christians. Rather, it refers to people who look almost indistinguishable from the children of the kingdom, as these weeds resemble the wheat. They are essentially imitation Christians, those who claim to be Christ's disciples, but haven't really accepted the kingdom in their hearts. That's kind of an alarming idea, isn't it? Jesus tells us that there's an enemy outside the gates, a supernatural power bent on destroying us, and there are traitors among us. Double agents infiltrating our denominations, our seminaries, our Christian colleges and schools, our presbyteries and sessions and committees, our very churches. You might be sitting next to one right now. How can you even tell? These satanic double agents, they look just like you or me. What are we going to do? Nothing. That's what Jesus says to do. Nothing. Isn't that a weird answer? Do nothing? It's a strange response to such an alarming situation. I mean, doesn't it feel a bit paranoid to you? After all, I mean, it's really a conspiracy theory, isn't it? It just happens to be a true conspiracy. It's Satan's conspiracy against the church. 
And usually when people tell us these kind of stories, they're trying to get us to do something. You know this, right? You know, we all live near D.C. We're wise to this. When somebody puts up some ad trying to convince you that the one politician is, you know, the devil incarnate, what are they, what are they trying to do? They know that fear is a motivator. They want you to vote for the other guy. But Jesus gives us this story not to, stro- to uh, stoke a fear response in us, but to counsel us to do nothing. And why not? Because in our zeal to respond and hunt out the double agents, we may damage the children of the kingdom. What does that look like? I think it becomes clear when we think a bit about the dangers of paranoia. You know, human connection and community is largely impossible without extending some kind of trust to another person. But when we're always looking for the enemy in every person we see, in every interaction, we can't extend that trust. We are primed to hold back and withdraw from others or else to attack, to accuse, to read everything that happens in the worst possible lights. And I think this is a dynamic that we actually see in church conflict a lot. You know, uh, let a Christian see sin or injustice in another member of the body and immediately Satan knows that he has a great opportunity. If he can stoke fear, defensiveness, and paranoia in that Christian, he may provoke a harsh and loveless response. In how many controversies, even over serious issues like scandal or heresy, do we see those who we might say are on the right side, nevertheless pressing their case in underhanded or destructive ways? By the time Satan's done, the sinful response to sin might be even more damaging than the original sin itself. That's the game he's playing. All this is not to say that we should never seek healthy conflict in the church. Jesus himself is going to teach only a few chapters later about the need to confront believers who uh, uh, cause offense and maybe even excommunicate some. Sometimes when sin is particularly flagrant and rebellious or or stands to do great harm to other members of the body and there's no repentance, the church must act. But Jesus' parable here is a dire warning to any who'd seek to pursue an overly exacting purity in the church, to be on a constant campaign to root out all who don't live up to the highest standards of holiness. Many who might grow into healthy corn, if corrected gently and mercifully, may instead be hurt in this way. There's a warning here against a tendency we sometimes have. When we disagree with other Christians, we might immediately jump to condemning them as heretics or children of Satan. Especially if uh, you're a Christian online. I've noticed that (laughs) Satan particularly tempts us there. And it's also a warning for those of us who are legitimately concerned about abuse and injustice we may see in the church. And that's a good and biblical thing. Don't hear me wrong. But there's no hope for change or reform in the church without persevering for a long time in a community marked with sin. Instead of doing this, we're often tempted to split off and schism only, and it always seems to happen, to discover that the new smaller thing we started also has sin and injustice and abuse of power. You know, one great illustration, I think, of this is Maximilien Robespierre, the leader in the French Revolution. 
Do you know that at the start of the revolution, he attempted to get the death penalty banned in France? That was his original position, no death penalty. Three years later, he was signing the death warrants by guillotine for scores and scores of people. Three years, how did he go from advocate of no death penalty to being remembered as one of the most bloody tyrants uh, in world history? Well, I know if you look at the history, it has a lot to do with a war and a lot to do with paranoia about people who did not support his project inside the country who might try to overthrow him. He had these great ideas for what justice in France would look like. And he thought that he became convinced that violence was necessary to get there. And that's how he ended up becoming a tyrant. Let us be careful, brothers and sisters, that we don't go through a similar path spiritually. So, as many good, wonderful things as Jesus has called us to do, he hasn't called us to eradicate all evil from the world. Fundamentally, he's called us to do nothing about it. He's called us to walk away from our natural paranoia about enemies and double agents. We are to leave the problem of the world's evil in Jesus' hands. So, I mean, I know I probably tell you to do a lot of things when I'm up here preaching, but the application for this point, this Sunday, is don't do anything. Let's think this morning about ways we can be doing less about evil if that means refraining from attacking and pursuing others in ways that will damage other Christians. Point number three, Jesus is judge. In his explanation of the parable, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. It's a title he used for himself a lot, um, but particularly here, it's clear what Old Testament passage he has in mind. Daniel 7. There we meet a figure who's described as one like a son of man, who's given an eternal kingdom. There's the kingdom of God. And dominion and authority in the heavenly court, which is sat for judgments. Jesus identifies himself with this figure here. At the end of the world, he will send his angels to separate the righteous from the wicked. I think this is a part of Jesus' teaching that we have a hard time with today. All the end time stuff. The tribulation and the stars falling and the end of the world, the judgment and hellfire, the sheep and the goats. There's a temptation to ignore this part of Jesus' message and only focus on the stuff that sounds nice, like knowing God as our Father and loving our neighbor and mercy and forgiveness. But it is clear that among all else that Jesus was, he was a prophet of the end times, of a final judgment of God which separates the righteous and the wicked. What are we supposed to do with this word of judgment in our text today? For a lot of preachers in the history of the church, this has been an occasion to call their hearers to repentance. They remind us that in God's kingdom, weeds may become weeds. People may be changed by the word of the gospel and repent. And that's certainly a true and good application. Jesus teaches us that there's a day coming when those who have not accepted the kingdom of God will depart into eternal punishment, which he describes in awful and terrible terms as an unquenchable fire, as weeping and gnashing of teeth. While those who acknowledge their sin, repent, and accept Jesus as their king will be purged from sin, glorified, and shine together with the light of God eternally. It's not something that I, as a teacher of the gospel, want to be unclear about. If you are someone here who has not 
turned from your sin, repented, and put your faith in Jesus, it is urgent that you do so. Do not delay. But you know, it's actually kind of remarkable how little this particular parable focuses on that. There are others that do. But actually, this parable sort of abstracts completely from things like conversion, repentance, and change. It it ignores the fact that the children of the kingdom may still have much evil and sin inside of them, or that the children of evil were nevertheless still created good by God and bear His image. It ignores the fact that through the word of the gospel, people are are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Uh, It doesn't deny that any of those things are true, and we find them elsewhere in Jesus' teaching. But that's not the focus here. Here it's simply a matter of a dualistic conflict of good and evil, a war between Jesus and the devil, where you are simply on one side or the other. Why is that? I think that's because the point of the parable is less directed to those who don't believe in Jesus and more directed to those who do, who are committed to his kingdom, who even have a burning zeal to bring it to realization. It's directed to those who are troubled by the evil and hypocrisy and injustice they see around them, especially when they see that evil and hypocrisy and injustice uh, among those who claim to be on the side of Jesus and the angels. Jesus knows that these people will be tempted to take upon themselves the mantle of judge, to go on a crusade to eradicate evil. And they need to understand what time it is. Sometimes in theology, we call this the already and the not yet. Is Jesus' kingdom already here, or is it coming in the future? Well, it seems to be both. Jesus says that the kingdom is here, it's among us. But at the same time, the final consummation of the kingdom is not here yet. That means that now the kingdom is hidden, and we won't really see it in its full reality until the final day. It's often difficult to figure out what is already and what is not yet. We could talk for hours about different areas of the Christian life that are affected by this. Um, What should we expect for change and righteousness and blessing here? And what do we have to wait for? But in this context, Jesus wants us to be very clear that the day of judgment is not yet. Furthermore, it's not our job. It's up to Jesus and his angels at the end of time. And when we know who the judge is, it will help us persevere through an evil age. When we know who the judge is, we don't need to live in paranoia. When we know who the judge is, we don't need to stand in judgment over others ourselves. When we know who the judge is, we don't need to despair in the face of evil. When we know who the judge is, we don't need to fear the devil and his power. We can entrust judgment into Christ's hands and wait for the day his father has appointed. And who is our judge? Our judge is Jesus, the God who will eliminate all sin, who will judge the world according to his perfect righteous standard at the end of time, is also the man who became sin for us and who died that we might be forgiven. In Jesus, we see that God is both just and merciful, And it's good to hold on to this as we struggle with evil, both in our own hearts and also in the world around us. Our judge is Jesus, and this means that we don't need to be afraid that even the evil inside of us is going to separate us from him. If we put our faith in him, 
then we are accepted as sons and daughters of his kingdom, and there is nothing Satan can do to change that. As the word from Joel we read earlier says, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Our judge is the one who perfectly fulfills God's law on our behalf, and we will stand before that judgment throne based purely on what he has done and not on our own merit. Satan's plot to thwart the church will fail. The conspiracy of the weeds will not stand. In the end, Jesus will present his saints spotless before God to shine like stars, and Satan will be unable to dim that light. Let's remember that as we go back into the world this week, which is the field where Jesus has sown us. Much may still be hidden in mystery. There's much that we won't understand about this world and the evil in it. There may even be much that we don't understand in Holy Scripture. But one thing is clear. Jesus is the answer to the mystery. The light of God's love is revealed in him, and there is nothing more for us to do than trust in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that it is not up to us to remove the evil from the world, which is much too great a task, especially when we consider how often we fail with even the evil in our own hearts. We pray that you would help us to remember this parable. Remember that you are at work through Jesus. Remember that you've planted us where you put us. Help us to focus just on growing and faithfulness to the calling you've given us. Help us to be gentle and not driven by fear. Help us to refrain from acting in ways that harm and damage others. Help us to leave judgment in your hands. And Lord, how we look forward to when Jesus returns and finally puts all things right. We pray that he would come quickly. Amen.